Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast chute. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. Experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The age of time and space for the impossible to happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. This week, we've got a special show for you. We are recording in front of a live audience at the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society in Van Nuys, California. Thank you so much to Bosphus for allowing us to do this here today. And with me is Susan Fox, our executive producer. Hey, Neil yeah. Fulcher. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Don't I'll ask. explain it to you later. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yes. our, our guest is, is returning from uh, uh, our guest... Why do I freeze up? Our I'm, guest, I'm our guest is. I'm fine in front of a live audience, but gosh darn it, hit that record button and I just, blah, 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 I just I, fall apart. Our guest this evening is Rob Soyder. We call him the voice of legend. Uh, he is a scholar of myth and legend, and he is the author of the Brass Jack series, the first book of which is called The Little Lost Princeling from Hunt Press. And the second book has just come out today. They coordinated the book with our recording today of the Event Horizon, and it is called A Fine Bit of Insurrection, Brass Jack, A Fine Bit of Insurrection. So the also voice of Hunt legend Press. moves into the future. <laughs> so let's, let's shoot the sheriff in the first week. <laughs> let's jump into it. Let's, uh, who's Brass Jack? Has he got a lot of brass? Yes, well... Uh, and where? And where? <laughs> well, uh, the Brass Jack series is just your average uh, epic space opera, low-tech meets high-tech meets aliens meets magic meets people you would want to hang out in a bar and have a drink with, and they would probably leave you with a tab kind of <laughs> Meets guys in dresses. Well. Hey. Hey. <laughs> so, uh, Kilt. Kilt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how good kilts in space are, really. Kilts, you know, kilts do depend on gravity. Yes, they do. Kilts in anti-gravity sounds like a real problem. Anyway, about the book. <laughs> about the book. <laughs> um, so, uh, a long time ago, I was... I decided I was going to write science fiction because I've always loved science fiction. And by the way, I'm very honored to be here tonight with you folks. This organization has a very long and prestigious history and some of the best writers that have ever graced the pages of science fiction and fantasy have come through your hall. So thank you guys so much. For that. I'm also very honored to be on Krypton Radio to have them invite me back. 
Um, I've always wanted to be a science fiction writer ever since uh, I got the first books in my hands. I'm hugely inspired by Heinlein, Zelazny, Pratchett, uh, technically not science fiction, but uh, all the great fantasy and science fiction writers. And so at one point I sat down and I said, I'm going to write a science fiction book. Woohoo! And I started to write, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote. And they say you write about what you love. Well, I have history as a storyteller, as a person who uh, is heavily involved in uh, reenactment, both with the Queen Maeve encampment and with the Society of Creative Anachronisms. And the other thing is, is of course, uh, I live a technical life in broadcast and things like that, so I cover both sides of the spectrum. So I said, you know, wouldn't it be really great if we had Celts and powered armor and swords and black powder and magic and high technology and aliens? Yeah. Everything but the kitchen sink. And I'm certain there That'll were, be in the third book. Yeah, that'll be in the third book. And so I just started writing. And when I started writing, at one point, you know, I finished and time passed, and then I ran into the wonderful folks at Hunt Press. And yay, yay, Hunt Press! So, just so you guys know, the cool thing about Hunt Press is they have kind of a different attitude. Uh, first of all, that writers and authors are human beings. I know it's it, from a publishing perspective. This is very new, a new concept. We're not just moo cows. Yes, actually kind of weird. Yeah, it's actually kind of weird. And the other thing is, is um, for instance, uh, when they put out stuff, it's not coated with uh, DRM and things like that that's going to keep you from being able to open up your books and stuff like that. They fe- they fear obscurity more than piracy. And so the idea is is they want to make science fiction and fantasy and the, and the things that they publish accessible for everyone. And so I ran into them at your convention. Lost Con? Lost Con. And went, yay! <laughs> I, I would like to point out, by the way, that that a lot of this applause is happening because uh, uh, Michelle Pincus, Michelle Pincus the, is now our... They're cheering yeah. the applause. <laughs> She's holding up the sign. She's holding up a hand-lettered sign that says applause. Vanna White is the Michelle Pincus right. of the game shows. You know? Yes. So <laughs> I run into uh, Hunt Press, and they espouse their, their ideas. And I said, geez, would you guys take a look at my book? And I gave it to them, and they sent me an email the next day, and they said, you're in. Okay. Wow. Oh, yeah. And, wow. I, and the thing was, is at that point, I had no real idea that I would ever – any of the things I'd written, I'd written columns and magazines and stuff like that. But I'd never had the idea that my book would ever see sunlight. Your and, mother must be so proud. Oh. She's got your book on yeah. you know, the shelf. So um, anyhow – I handed it to them, and they said, well, just how long is this thing? And by the way, my nickname is True because I'm also known as True Thomas the Storyteller. Anybody who sees me at at conventions and everything, if you call me True, I know which side of my life you're from, and that means you're probably from the fun fun side of my life. So um, anyhow, they said, True, how long is this thing? And I said, uh, 276,000 words. Okay. Now, just so you know, I am an old school science fiction reader. You know, back in the day when books were this freaking thick. You know, remember Dune? You know, a moon in God's eye. Right. You know those books. When you dropped them, they went oof. Right. And they looked at me and said, uh, 
you have not written a novel. You've committed trilogy. <laughs> I went, whoo? And they said, yeah, we're going to have to slice this puppy up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's one of those Alexander Sword moments, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> so uh, <laughs> anyhow, so we decided... Uh, that we're going to put it together. and He's this, not just a writer, he's a Foley artist. That's right. <laughs> so we decided we are going to put together, and so it's called the Brass Jack, Brass Jack Cycle. And Brass Jack is um, a spy who doesn't want to be a spy anymore. Uh, in, in, the, in the novels, there's a world called Lembob, which has a very irritating side effect. It messes with psionics, it messes with technology, and pretty much everybody who lives there has to be pretty tough because on this world, grizzly bears are considered a prey species. It's, (laughs) yeah, it's a rough, tough world. Nobody really wants to go there. It's in the corner of the universe. It's named Lembop. That just kind of gives you the, the idea. And so because it affects technology and psi and things like this, a lot of the people from the conquered worlds and conquered systems have decided they're going to hide there. And they are called the visitors. The locals are called Scrats. They're Celts. They're about at the tech level of, of gunpowder and sword, you know, single shot. Where'd you come up with the word scrat? Is that Gaelic for something, or did you make it up? Ever, ever, heard, uh, uh, ever heard the term hard scrabble? Yes. You know, that's scrat, or uh, it's, it's actually, you know, uh, kind of one of those loner words of hard scrat, hard scrabble. Okay. Hmm. okay. And so, you know, that's just how tough these people are. Their winters are twice as long as ours are. Um, their world is a, a rough, tough world, and the visitors are just kind of hiding in the background, drawing no attention. Um, Brass Jack himself, though, is Hygation. He's a person from a, 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 a system that is orbital. Um, pretty much they've evolved. They're all about seven feet tall, long and slender, and wired to the gills with every bit of technology you could possibly imagine. They decide, as they're being conquered, that he needs to be a spy. And so they shrink him down so he'll fit in with uh, the population of the other worlds. And unfortunately, it doesn't go well, and he ends up on Lembob. And so you have a guy who's essentially an engineer now trying to teach himself how to be a farmer on one of the roughest planets around. Think, you know, if we took Steve Jobs and made him, let's say, a farmer in Scotland. But he's more than a farmer there. He's he's doing some... Some, uh, he's always trickifying. He's always goofy doing. He's always well, up he's to also something. sheltering artificial intelligences that are right. rather wanted elsewhere. It's, oh, um, yeah, absolutely right. When he uh, amscrays from the Highgate system as the Empire is taking it over, he ends up uh, leaving with his uh, ship. The ship is uh, controlled by an artificial intelligence named Alice um, after the Alice in Wonderland. And uh, Alice is his uh, lady love. And so, uh, unfortunately, they are stuck on a world, the two of them, hiding from the Empire. And um, in Brass Jack, uh, so in the, first, in the first book, we kind of uh, set up all the, uh, sorry. In the first book, we set up kind of all the players, and um, Brass Jack runs into... Uh, a young man who uh, is trying to win his lady love, 
and he's an imperial, and they have no reason to love each other. Uh, unfortunately, due to circumstances, they run into each other, and Brass Jack, of course, being a spy and a very clever old guy, um, gets the jump on them. And he adopts the young man, sort of, to keep him alive. Not quite certain why uh, <clears throat> at first. And later on, they become friends. And in the second book, uh, well, two things happen because of that. Number one, Brass Jack, uh, because the young man is there and everybody's looking for him. Because he's like 38th in line for the imperial throne. He's right. He's not the young man, intrinsically that important, but still... Right. Important enough. The young man is is kind of considered a drone by imperial standards. He doesn't have uh, psionic powers in the way that they they understand them, and so um, he's kind of forgotten. But when he gets loose on Lembob, they say we've got to go get him. We can't have him running around. He runs into Jack, and then they start sending people to go find him. Unfortunately, the Empire is in the middle of a deadly battle. Uh, with a uh, creatures called the Organi, and the problem with the Organi is, is they're probably the world, the universe's most efficient machine, organic machine. When it hits a planet, it eats everything and keeps on moving. If it can't eat you now, it'll adapt and it'll figure out a new way. Think John Carpenter's The Thing, but less friendly. I'm thinking Galactus without the nice purple hat. Right, and <laughs> it just. <laughs> It just takes all the organic yeah. matter on the Yeah, no heralds planet, either. No? That would be <laughs> So um, the Empire's in deadly battle there. Uh, and so they're going around impressing everybody. Everybody that they can they can train to hold a gun gets impressed, puts it in, put into a uniform and sent off to fight. Well I'm impressed. Well thank you. <laughs> uh, so what happens is the village of Lembob uh, or the village nowhere. the village of nowhere gets impressed. And Jack sees well, them and says these are my people. I can't let them go without my help. And so he sneaks onto the ship and goes with them. That's the end of book one. At book two, we come to the the startling conclusion that Jack, while he's sneaking around in the Imperial uniforms being part of his unit, um, gets a message saying that the citizens of nowhere, these hard scrabble Celts, have decided they're going to mount a rescue mission. And they've dug up an old spaceship from the side of a mountain. And this is like a slap your forehead situation because they are like they are not spacefarers, right? They, at all. they make the High Crusade look like you know Steve Jobs, okay? But they're going to go rescue they're going their to troops do it, by gosh. because they're Celts, <laughs> and they're going to go rescue their troops. And uh, in breast uh, in the. Um, uh, they, they basically succeed more, more off. Uh, well, they get it off the planet. That's they they get it off the planet. They may, they basically succeed mainly because they don't realize they can't. Right. <laughs> um, they take the ship called the Biscuit, and they they manage to get into orbit, and they go after their friends, and that's where book two picks up. Uh, as book two, uh, I hope you'll uh, take the time to read it. Um, as book two rolls forward, um, Brass Jack has a very tricky job in, in front of him. One, he knows his friends are coming for them, and he is totally not prepared to deal with this. What do you do with a bunch of crazed Celts who don't know how to fly the ship that they really have in a battle zone? Two, the Empire has just run into the new Organi superweapon, and everybody's dying. Three, he needs to sneak them back out from under the nose of the Empire and get everybody home without anybody noticing. 
Unfortunately, the young man, <laughs> oh, the young imperial lord, for reasons that are covered in book one, has gotten his psionic abilities back. And, and they are, he is large and in charge. He's right. In, uh, but not quite in control of his powers. The empire tunes in on him and finds out that he's alive, finds out that they're sneaking away. And at the end of, uh, or toward the end of the book, you see everybody trying to figure out how to get home and hopefully not get killed. And unfortunately, it's a bit of a tricky bit. Well, this is the downside of the second of a trilogy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the problems with <laughs> writing a, a, a science fiction epic, especially if you're going to have starships, is you have a lot of mechanics you have to figure out. You have to figure out how... Uh, how do people come into a system? Are they just doing the Star Wars, they hit the lever, everything blurs, and they there? Are they doing the Star Trek? You know, different science fiction genres have different mechanisms. In my universe, or in this particular universe, you have a lot of different methods. And one of the big advantages the Imperials have is they have a, a type of drive that allows them to link to it psionically. And one of the things they can do is they can take their massive ships and drop them right next to a planet. It's gunship diplomacy at its finest. Oh, crap, where did that come from? <laughs> and so, you know, before anybody can mount anything. And so one of the things that they find out in the novel is this drive comes with some very serious liabilities. And so um, this, this technology is one of the things that gives the Imperials their big edge. Unfortunately... It is one of the things causing the war as well, and the prince or the young the young man finds out about this and has to do something about it. So it's uh, one of the things that struck me about this. What you what you mentioned earlier was that uh, your publisher said that you had committed trilogy, and yet you've got you've got uh, this whole thing already all written out, and you're. Uh, your story structure and your story arcs on a per book basis. I mean, you you had this thing set up as one book. Yeah. Now it's three. <laughs> did you? What did you have to do to those books to make them work in a in a uh, um, a series format? Um, or did you? I mean, or, it's good or, enough. Or, for or Tolkien, did you modify them? You. I mean, well, no. I I had to. One of the things is is you know you kind of have to give a nod to people that when they pick up the middle book that they could actually read it without having to buy the previous book. And so hopefully it's strong enough to ride on onto its own merit. So I kind of do some, you know, moments where Jack is thinking back to himself, that sort of thing. I mean, it was one of those moments of, oh, my God, cry a lot, eat a lot more calories than you're really supposed to do, and... <sighs> Bang, 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 bang. Hey, look, three separate pieces. There's your darling. Right. And then one of the other problems is, and just for those people who are thinking about writing science fiction, I'm a newbie, but uh, two things I would definitely recommend. Number one, keep a Bible as you're writing. Because when you get 2,000 words in, oh, man, you can really screw yourself. Uh, <laughs> what did I call – what color were her eyes? I don't remember. Uh, another thing I would definitely recommend, uh, Brass Jack is heavily influenced by a lot of my friends. Um, pe- no. Yeah, I know. Uh, I have a great – most of us, especially in this community, we have – a lot of characters in our lives. I mean, people who... In this community, we call it Tuckerizing for a famous 
stealer of his friends' identities and names. Right. Well, I tuckerized the hell out of this. You betcha. Um, so the thing was is uh, the only problem is is I'm a nice guy, and as a writer, you can't be a nice guy to your characters. You have to be able to. You have to without a blink. You have to go. What's you know, the worst thing I can do? Right. You have to be willing to it. throw your friend into the wood chipper. You know, you have to, you know, rabid, you know, rabid squirrels, you know, whatever. <laughs> What's like? Well, sometimes you can you can turn that into a positive. I think I think David Weber has been, you know, auctioning, you know, be a character in a David Weber book for charity, and and you know, and you get to die amazingly. Well, you, you guys, know? you guys have seen that meme where it's um, uh, the writer of uh, Harry Potter. And uh, she's she's saying it's a hard it's hard to kill some of your main characters, and below that it's the writer of Game of Thrones. That's so cute. <laughs> George R. R. Martin. Yes, and I mean, what's the joke? Uh, why doesn't George R. R. Martin uh, use Twitter? He's already killed 144 characters. Uh, <laughs> so, but the thing is, is as I was writing Brass Jack, I I. Am fortunate in the fact that I have a lot of friends who is Joe going to get mad at you if you kill off Joe right. in the book? And so now, no, have, not really. In, in the honestly. magic of the world of Facebook, you know, you say, "Hey, do you mind if I feed you two rabid weasels?" And they're like, "Yes, please." <laughs> but you kind of need to get that ahead of time. So that's a that's another bit of advice. Um, the other thing I would say is, is uh, when I was taking Brass Jack apart and trying to put it back together again. You look at it and you go, okay, where's my natural segue points? Where do I where do I chop? Because if I, I chop here, it's going to leave a lot of stuff un, un, unexplained. And I, I was very, very lucky not knowing it. It was just one of those things. I noticed that I had three or I had two sections where pretty much the people are leaving and going someplace else. Oh, so you had exits and right, exit and so I, built into it. I'm so clever. <laughs> so exit hey, pursued yeah. by bear. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and and the bear is wearing a power suit. Right. Oh, I bet he wants a power suit now. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Well, build him one. And and speaking of power suits, well, the other thing is, is uh, when I was trying to uh, create Brass Jack, I had a couple of questions that that I had asked. How does uh, psionics work? What are the rules of psionics? How does magic work? How does technology work? And then, oh joy, how do they all work with each other? And so um, one of the things that I've always loved is powered armor. And I'm not talking about this horrible movie, Starship Troopers, that that, that came out. They oh, didn't have God. powered armor in it because the uh, it was too expensive. Produ- well, it wasn't too <laughs> expensive. Some some one of the studio people said, "Oh, they're jumping around it like jumping beans. That would look stupid." So he cut it. But they had it all designed, and it looked awesome. But oh, I oh. I loved yeah. powered yeah, I'm armor. Disappointed. Um, you know, I, I love powered armor, and as I said, I'm going if I'm going to write a book, damn it, I'm going to have powered armor. And and the other thing is, is you know, I'm looking at like Celts, and Celts have magic. You know, it's just part of what we do. But Scots are bunny engineers, don't you know? Yeah, exactly. So I don't. And think so that, I don't think that has something to do with it. Uh, my my big uh, Celts, the the Celtic tribes, 
Um, because one of my uh, specialities is, is folklore mythology, and in particular Celtic folklore mythology, you know, that was, you know, I could pull this stuff out of my head and, and, and put into a book. It's not going to take me that much work. Um, you know, if I'd been doing Aztec or something, I would have been hosed completely. But uh, the thing is, is how, how does that work? And my big MacGuffin was Lembob, the world. Why is it that the technology doesn't work that well? And how does it not work? And so when you're creating a world, when you're writing a series, one of the things you have to really worry about is how is this coherent? Why, why do you get to just write, oh, well, his magic sword works, but his, his laser doesn't, you know, or well, vice versa? All, you know, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It's just, hey, you, since you're the writer, you get to set the rules for this one, and that's where you're, you know, writing a Bible of keeping track of how it all works and making sure it's consistent. And that's, as a, somebody who studies folklore and legend, I mean, the line between alien and, and fairy folklore is pretty thin. I used mean, to be alien abduction. Now it's alien abductions. It used to be fairy changeling abductions. children. Right, you know. Uh, the green children come wandering out of the hills and they've got green skin and don't know how to eat our food. Hmm, I wonder where they're from. Uh, but, I mean, if you look at fairy folklore... People get grabbed all the time. They get pulled into the fairy realm. They show up seven years later. Hello, True Thomas. And uh, they show up seven years later not understanding how time works or people uh, age, you know, 40 years by stepping on the wrong spot in the grass or Rip Van Winkle, you know. So time dilation and all that stuff, everything pretty much that you see in the fairy folklore can be pretty much brought over into... I have never thought about that. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, it's, think about the Sasquatch. Now that you pointed out, it seems yeah. obvious. Right. If you look at the modern-day things running around, you know, we say, oh, look, Loch Ness, that's a pleosaur. That's our ex- explanation, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... It's a guy with a puppet. Come on. Right. Um, <laughs> I wanted the aliens in my series to be uh, of whole cloth. I want, I'm coming, beanie boy. I'm coming. <laughs> I have no idea what sea he's talking serpent. about. He's uh, the sea serpent. She's Louise. Sock puppet. Sock puppet, please. Yes, but one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to have, uh, like, the, the various <laughs> alien races. And the other thing I wanted to do in the novels, I wanted to have stuff that was not explained. I know it's, it's you know, as an art, as a writer, there's, there's things where you go, where the hell did this come from? What's this all about? Deus ex machina. Yeah, but in real life, that's where things happen. Sometimes you don't know why this person next to you was killed. It may not be explained for a couple of books, right? When I wrote the book, I pulled a lot of the stuff um, from my life. I'm a Marine, and so uh, a lot of the space combat and the, the military life is pulled from my experiences being a grunt in, in, the, in the Corps. Um, when they're at the refinery on another planet, I worked for Aramco in Saudi Arabia, right? And I had an idea of what those kind of people are like. Um, talking sword and shield, I dress up in armor and I hit people with sticks, you know, as you do. And, uh, and so uh, Hemingway said that if you want to write, go out and live life. Write about what you know. And so as science fiction people, that's a little bit harder because we don't actually, most of us have wonderful phone booths we can just jump into whenever we want. Well, we can't, but they don't take us anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. And they are definitely smaller on the inside. Yeah. Um, 
it's interesting. Our whole community is going through some changes in terms of because suddenly everything we like is cool, right? We watch, we go to the movies, and how, where would Hollywood be without our, our our vampires and werewolves? Am I the only one in this room who's terrified by that fact? <laughs> yeah. You know what, but you know. You but know? next year we'll be we'll be back in the gutter where we belong, you know. Yeah, because uh, defiant because they'll move on. And one of the one of the, the the things that can corrupt an art form very very quickly is big piles of money. Well, there was Star and Wars, it's Star San Wars, Diego Comic Con. Oh, yeah. Comic Con is just dead to me, and so is the New York <laughs> Comic Convention, and so is Dragon Con because they're just. Commercial exhibitions now, but yeah, but yeah. Let us let us not forget though that we did advertise at Comic Con. Yeah. Uh, well, yes, we're not stupid. Dragon Con. We have a half-page ad coming out in Dragon Con's program guide. Yeah. But for those of us who who read science fiction and fantasy, those of us who know the myths and legends, look. I'll give you an example. Look at Avengers. What is Avengers? We have. Thank you. We have a wizard with a magical suit of armor. We have another wizard who's possessed by a demon. We have a a paladin who drank a magical potion and has a magic shield. We have an archer with magical arrows. We have uh, who's left? God. You have a god. Uh, uh, right. We have a god, a Norse <laughs> god. Right. Can't forget him. And finally, we have a redhead. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's your basic storyteller starter six pack right there, you know. And, and so it, it's kind of funny. I, I call it the well of inspiration because Hollywood and, and transmedia keeps going back to it over and over and over. Now, granted, if you, you know, start talking about Cinderella, you know, you could hear the lawyers gathering over here, right? Because somebody trademarked it and copyrighted it and so on and so forth. But when we get a chance to write in our books and we get to pull in all this wonderful stuff and make a, a story out of it, that is when we get to play with the language of the gods. That's when we get to, to reach into what's us and write something that that hopefully is meaningful to us and hopefully meaningful to you. I'm actually not that good of a writer in terms of my writing skill because when I was growing up, I had, a, had to go through foster homes and group homes and stuff like that. And so I had been reading forever. But actually putting it on paper? Holy crap. You can't put commas everywhere? <laughs> That's the sound of an editor screaming. Re, I'm really sorry. I'm apologizing now. But, uh, you know, you, the art form of actually taking what's in here and putting it down on paper... Suddenly, your brain has to work in three million different other ways than you ever suspected. It's all practice. Right. I love telling stories in person because it's just me seeing the movies in my head and telling you what I'm seeing. But when you try to put it down on paper and then have somebody else and pick it up and go, What the hell? <laughs> it's a challenge. Yeah, it's a. Uh, uh, one of the things that I thought about was, uh, and again, uh, the the construction of the, uh, of the stories. Uh, you know, you have the pivot point at, uh, you know, about the page one fifty or, or whatever it is for a three hundred page novel, and uh, having to chop this book up into three separate pieces must have played merry hell 
with your story arcs. I mean, did you did you have to go back and and uh, uh, I mean, you, you did some adjustment, you know, right. so, that, so that you get the segues in and out of each book. But how much more? How much more did you have to adjust? Did you have to do any major uh, surgery in order to make these books stand on their own? Actually, like I said, it was just one of those moments of long, deep soul searching and lots of Hagendas. And uh, <laughs> by the way, you know, don't be a chubby writer. I don't recommend it. Um, the uh, the thing I was going to say is, is uh, I was very lucky because I. I found those two points where mm-hmm. they're jumping and leaving and strangely enough the book ends with them going someplace and that is pretty awesome <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, we don't know how the, the second book ends yet but right. I'm sure we there's a decent mm-hmm. you know stopping point there too so the uh, you brought up the you brought up the the adventures and uh, the origins of our modern mythology mm-hmm. and i just <clears throat> the I'm dying here. <laughs> so we've got the wise old man in Brass Jack. We've right. got yeah. the uh, the the young man on a quest in Tyan. Mm-hmm. What other archetypes are you drawing on here, or other legends? Well, first of all, I'm shamelessly ripping off some of my gaming friends because I'm an avid gamer, mm-hmm. and so Dungeons and Dragons and everything that was meant to keep me alive, uh, or at least reasonably sane. Um, so some of the characters I, I just flatly kind of ripped off with permission um, uh, because I've played a lot of different games. Um, there are two characters, uh, Shipshaker and uh, Commander Russell, who are based on a character who's a, a friend of mine, Red Tom, and so. When I started writing those characters, I heard his voice. It just literally, it just popped right into my head. Oh, that's, uh, that's fun. When, he's when his own that, legend. When you I have, guess. When you have somebody is. that you know that's so much of a character to start with, yeah, I want to see Adara as a starship. Character, yeah, personally, I think that would be very right. And so I was very she lucky in the, in the fact that I have many friends who actually it for my brain, which never stops. We have a question in the back there. Uh, yes. Come well, on up. And while, while he's coming up, I'll, I'll just finish the sentence. For my brain that never stops, I can't help but look at other people and see them in other roles. Uh, my friend Nick Smith over here, who's a very talented and wonderful storyteller. That's applause. Yes. I see him and I see somebody who was born to play some sort of mage. I mean, because yeah, yes. he he just has that. I study things, and you don't, you will never see me coming. Kind of attitude. <laughs> never, never piss off the librarian. Yes, never <laughs> piss off the librarian. We have a never for, piss have, on the librarian. <laughs> we have a question from the audience. Well, from William William Curry. Yeah, I not so much a question, but uh, a thing. I've been reading Conan the Conqueror by Robert E. Howard, and he says. Conan just kind of came to his mind when he was on the on the Rio Grande, in a Texas town, and uh, but in a way that's been proven false because he wrote a King Cole story uh, the same as uh, the first Conan story except it didn't have the magic in it 
and a magician in it like to toss them on. So, but I mean, that man could write, but uh, it was too bad he had to take his own life. Yeah. But uh, we're not going to let True do that. Yeah, please. (laughs) uh, You kill me, you kill yourself, I'll never speak to you again. Yes. (laughs) But uh, I was reading Conan the Conqueror today, and I mean, the action never lets up. And that's one of the things where I said my mechanics maybe aren't the best. I think one of the things that because I'm a professional storyteller, and when you're telling a story, if you lose your audience you know quick. People start looking away. People start fiddling with things. People get up and go to the bathroom or what have you. That kind of forces you into a a mindset of how do I stay connected and relevant to the audience? And that is something I think I do bring to the the writing. And so hopefully when you read the books, you'll be engaged. And after you get into the characters, you'll be saying, okay, I want to know. I want to be that I'm not that author yet, but I want to be that author that makes you say in the morning, crap, why do I read his books? (laughs) Because I didn't get any sleep last night. (laughs) That's actually the problem I had reading Little Lost Princeling, the first book. I picked it up. I could not put it down. And I, I, I finally finished it. I looked up. It was 4.30 in the morning. Oh, my God. But that's that's how that's how good the book is. I mean, you you pick it up and the characters live and breathe immediately, and uh, and you are completely wrapped up in the story. And everything. One of the great things about it is everything makes sense, and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't drop something. You don't drop something. I'm talking about him in the third person. He's sitting right here. You don't drop things in some in the reader's lap and then make them wait for 17 chapters before it makes any sense. <laughs> And yeah, that I really There's appreciate that. There's a virtue to that, though. Yeah, there we is. were talking to Mike Barron a few weeks ago, and the first half of the book it was just kind of a general conspiracy theory, blah blah blah, and then then the 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 pivot point happens halfway through, and suddenly everything, every tiny detail, lead you know from the first half of the book leads to something really important later on. So if you're paying attention, that sort of thing well, is yeah. okay. Well, one of the beautiful things about living in this community is you get to talk to people who know stuff. One of my friends, Chris Spurl, um, he's a an industrial chemist. And so at a certain point in the book, uh, in the refinery, they need to deal with a very serious uh, organic problem. And so they ask, what can you do to help us out? And I turned to Chris and I said, you're a chemist. What, what would a chemist in the future do? And he said, WCD, what would chemists do? Yes. And so he says, well, we haven't done this yet, but it's hypothetically possible. And he gives me this chemical formula and kind of explains how ozone three might work. Holy crud. I am terrified. And so (laughs) that's going in the book. That's excellent. <laughs> and, you know, and that's one of those nods to, you know, Larry Niven and Ringworld Engineers and all the hard science, science fiction writers, you know, who actually sat down and said, okay, so we have this thing. It's the size of, you know, 5,000 planets, and it's stretched out. And how would you handle day and night? And how would you I, land on I the would, damn I'd like to talk- point out that that gentleman uh, in the in second the row there, that's... That's Jerry Pornell. 
Uh-huh. So he knows from asking the young dude to ask. I'm not worthy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, compared to compared to the uh, to to the hard science guys. Uh, I, I'm a mere piker, but no, I but you, I, I know have, a good note when I hear it. <laughs> no, but you have followed one of his his dictums, and if you don't know something, find the right person who does. Yep. So there you are. You're doing it right. Yep. And so uh, the other thing is, is that uh, when you have characters in your life, so many characters like. My friend Selene here um, has no resemblance whatsoever to a person uh, on the world who has a restaurant. <laughs> I don't own a restaurant, but I like to cook. And, and, and a fascination with food and, you know, has, has no small amount of ability in making the right connections happen. And so uh, the fact that there's a spy on that world who kind of resembles her is just purely coincidental. I haven't run into her in the story yet. Purely coincidental. Um, (laughs) And if I get eaten by rabid weasels, you know, I'll consider it a high compliment. Um, uh, All the uh, ships, all the big ships are are named after SCA (laughs) kings and queens. Yeah, I noticed that. Edric, Drogo, Guillaume. And, And so... You know, hopefully my SCA friends will read it and and they'll go, oh my god! And then, of course, the hero ship is called the Dietrich. And if you were to meet, <laughs> I thought you, it was Edric. No, no, uh, I think the Edric buys it. Unfortunately, oh. what? spoilers. <laughs> but the the thing is, is if you were to meet Dietrich in person, he's he's a very quiet, unassuming guy who can kick serious butt. And, and also quite a good writer himself. And he's a very talented writer himself. And so I was inspired. And so when I needed a ship, like you guys remember, the, like the Iowa, the Wisconsin, you know, the big battleships. I needed a big D. And so I was going to name them all after SCA kings and queens. And so my big, my big Wisconsin, my Iowa is the Dietrich. Okay. And the Dietrich... That sounds like a big ship just to start with. Yeah. <laughs> the Dietrich, unfortunately, goes through hell. But I've seen Dietrich... So has Dietrich. Yeah, I've I seen Dietrich come off the battlefield. Come off of it <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we all, we have just a few minutes left. What I'd like to okay. ask you... Uh, I have a couple of shout-outs I need to okay, do. So, okay, a couple of shout-outs. Uh, uh, what I'd like to ask you is um, where... Once this three-book set is done, are we going to see more Brass Jack? A lot of he's eaten by rabid weasels. Yeah. Um, I don't but there's always prequels, the you know? I think his prequels is getting the hell out of Highgate story how might be an interesting. How the heck they got it, yes. Right, so... Where he came from. It. Where, where he gets... If, if enough people like Brass Jack, if, if people read it... Um, which, by the way, it's uh, Hunt Press. It's up on Amazon. It's only five bucks for the ebook. Please feel free to check it out. You can check out my website, uh, robertsoiter.com. Um, that's S E U T T E R. You can also check it out on Hunt Press. I'm also on Facebook. You can also check out True Thomas the Storyteller. All roads lead to me trying to sell you something. Um, but the, the cool thing is, is. Uh, because Brass Jack is such a deep world in terms of so many things going on, there's how did Brass Jack get his name? Who are the Darkling? You know, what's the story? Do what happens to the Phantom Corps? 
And so there's a lot of questions. So, yeah, I could definitely keep writing this series forever, pretty much. But that being said, I really want to take a shot at writing some small short stories because, you know, most people don't start off with a mammoth. They start off with a bunny, and I I decided I was going to do a mammoth instead. Um, Yeah. Uh, I should have gone with a mammoth. And then the other thing is, is I have another series called uh, The Magic Came Back. And uh, the basic basic concept is um, we assume that the laws of the universe are constant, but what happens when Earth moves into an area where magic works again? And so, so it's like brain Paul Anderson's brainwave, only not right. <laughs> only only instead how many, of moving into How many into of you guys a, have read the Dies the Fire series? Uh, it's a uh, it's it's essentially all of a sudden technology stops working and what happens from that point on, and it's a great series. It gets more into more fantasy as it goes along, but the first couple of novels really gives you an idea of why we in the SCA love the medieval. Uh, the medieval times, but don't want to live there. Yeah. We're, we're sure building a post-apocalyptic skill set, though. Yeah, yeah, there's that. I could, I could, I could stay in clothes for a while. Um, I just wanted to give a, a quick shout out to. Uh, first of all, I'm going to be at WeirdCon. If any of you guys are going to WeirdCon, um, WeirdCon is all about transmedia storytelling in all its art forms. So everything from gaming to LARP, all the way to game design, uh, writing. Uh, publishing all its aspects and so I'm going to um, it, it'll be up on my website and also uh, up on it's like September weekend of September 12th I yeah, think I, in Orange County California very good um, I'm also going to be at uh, uh, the Solvang Fairy Festival doing my fairy folklore expertise thing you can come and try to win my lucky charms. Um, I actually have boxes of lucky charms. Oh, I was about to say your lady friend might have something to yeah, say about well, that. No, I actually have boxes of lucky charms I give out so if you can answer all my fairy folklore <laughs> trivia questions. Like, is it, are these are these you know charms or are, are they boxes or is of cereal? It is. It is the boxes of cereal. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right then. So Can't yeah, you know. Uh, so I got to tell you, people were coming out of the woodwork for those boxes of cereal. I couldn't believe it. Uh, so I'll be at the Solvang so Fairy funny. Festival. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm going to be storytelling events coming up. Uh, hopefully, I'm going to be at the Vista Viking Festival. Having um, getting out my Scandinavian tour stories. Um, are, are you going to be at LostCon in November? Um, don't know. <laughs> I'll definitely I'll, I'll definitely be uh, uh, stopping by. Um, let's see. Um, there was also somebody else I needed to mention. Well, first of all, Krypton Radio, which is amazing and awesome. <laughs> and, and Hunt Press for bringing ah. your books to bringing your books to the world. If you guys are uh, there, uh, they open up for submissions like uh, on and off every couple of months. And if you have books you want to get published, and I'm saying this to the Krypton audience, check out Hunt Press. They write a lot of good, uh, there's a lot of good fiction, a lot of good fantasy all up on their website. It's inexpensive and you don't have to pay through the nose to get it and you get to enjoy it. So that, and you know, no, no kitchen sinks were harmed in the making of this plug. So, <laughs> and that uh, that just about wraps up our time. 
Rob Soyder, author of the Brass Jack series, the Brass Jack Cycle, Little Lost Princeling, and out on Amazon today, even as we speak. And the new book, and and the and, and the a new book is called a a a. Go ahead. No, oh, it was five, oh, five a, minute warning. A fine bit of insurrection. It is a fine bit. Thank you, everyone, uh, for attending. This is uh, this is. He has a, to push the button. Right. Now. This. Oh yes. This is this is the part where we ask the guest to push the button to oh. end the show. All right. Uh, before I uh, push the button, I just want to say thank you guys for hosting us. You guys do an invaluable service, and we owe a round of applause to you. So thank you. This has been a Krypton Radio production. You have been listening to Episode 25 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon. For August 10th, 2013. Our guest this week has been science fiction writer Rob Soyder, author of The Brass Jack Cycle and the new novel Brass Jack, A Fine Bit of Insurrection from Hunt Press. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio General Manager Gene Turnbow and the station's executive producer Susan Fox. This episode will air again Sunday on August 11th, 2013 at 4pm Pacific, 7pm Eastern Time. This episode was recorded before a live audience at the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society Clubhouse in Van Nuys, California. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by renowned science fiction illustrator Mark Schirmeister. The part of the engineer was played by fandom dignitary Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Corsair's closet producer Christine Cherry. And the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction legend Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2013 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. Stay tuned for more great music and tonight's episode of X-Minus One. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>